Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and each week on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to speak to industry professionals. We talk to writers, directors, producers, and they answer your burning questions about the industry, how to break in, how to make amazing content, and how to have the career you've always dreamed of. If you are aspiring to be in the Canadian industry, you love Canadian content, or you're a seasoned veteran, this is the podcast for you. Today was a very special episode because I was joined by Karen Keatzak. She is a writer on Working Moms, and for season seven, she will also be co-showrunning. I think that the thing you're going to love about this episode is how specific Karen gets about her own experience in the industry. We talk about when to get an agent, how to get an agent. We talk about the unions. We talk about how she got her first writing job. And she also gives some really amazing insight on how to be intentional about the types of jobs that you're taking and also being fearless about, you know, leaving a secure position to go pursue a new passion and challenge yourself. So I know you're going to be as obsessed with Karen as I am. It was such a pleasure to get to speak with her. So without further ado, let's get into it. Recently, very interestingly, I've had a lot of really young filmmakers reach out to me looking for like really, really specific advice on like how to actually break into the industry because I have a yeah portion of my listenership that's just really looking for like you know tangible tips of like how to actually break in so I want to talk a little bit about that before we get into the fun of working moms. I totally I mean I totally relate to that like I feel like when I was in school and we would have guest speakers come in like it was the question was always how did you break in how did you get your first job how did you because it just feels so mysterious and I mean I think the the frustration to the answers that you tend to get is that it's it's a very unique path for everyone, you know, that there's, and it's a little bit like you just have to try kind of a whole, you know, a range of things to try to see what sticks and what actually, you know, happens to break through for you. Because, you know, for me, it was a, a, a mixture of, I guess, your own, like trying to take different programs like signing up for you know that I would take like WIFTY classes or uh, other writing classes I tried to make short films I tried to like still be meeting other people and kind of you know growing that network I think when I was in school I was initially looking at my my professors and like the guest speakers that would come in as like I need to try to forge a relationship with one of these people for them to hire me and in the end it turned out to be my my peers that like my first jobs came from friends getting on to something who could then bring me on as a PA and we could kind of move around together. And also like, like the information sharing, like, I guess it's, uh, you know, I think it took a long time for me to realize that those other people aren't your competition. Like they are your, you're going to level up together. And that can, I can kind of see in hindsight that there's, a handful of us like specifically from my Ryerson year that are all quite seasoned working screenwriters, you know, and that we have like shared 
the path together more than it's like, I mean, I guess sometimes you're technically competing for jobs, but that, that, that it's, do you know what I mean though? That it, it, you, you did get to like, okay, this person got a writer's assistant job. Like, what does that mean? What does that job actually look like? What does it mean to be a script coordinator? Like, how do you um, help each other with getting an agent? Like, what is that? You, you sort of, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot of like, there can be a lot of secrecy, it feels like, with how do you get an agent? What are you asking for? Like, yeah, I remember being like, how, how much am I supposed to be getting paid to do any of these jobs? You know, like this isn't kind of common knowledge and that you really have to like have people to ask, you know, to, to try to just gradually understand like what are union jobs what are non-union jobs what does it mean to join the writers guild like it's such a sort of um unstructured life to choose to be a you know in film and television to choose to be a writer to choose to be both of those things combined in being a screenwriter i feel like i was just always looking for any tangible piece of information <laughs> to try to guide forward you know and that i when I came out of school, I just started, I wanted to work on any set, any, any, any kind of on-set experience possible, which initially was a lot of reality shows. I worked on a lot of like home reno shows and food network shows and stuff like that for the first five years, partially and was taking classes and, and developing writing on the side. Partially just had to do with that. I didn't really see screenwriting fully as a career yet. I just thought I'll work in production, like I'll make things and I'll maybe get a feature produced one day, you know, in my life. And it, it, it took quite a bit of time for me to, to meet people who had gone to the film center to, you know, go like feel a little more like, oh, this is a, there is, there is a reality where I could be a working writer um, for film and television in Canada, you know, and that that's, and started to feel like, okay, now, you, so if you want that, you need to get into a writer's room, you know, and getting into a writer's room, there are entry-level positions. Most shows have either a writer's assistant and a script coordinator, or maybe only one of those two things, or a show, like I started as a showrunner's assistant on Rookie Blue for Tassie Cameron. That was my first writer's room gig. Can I ask you how you got that job? I mean, I got considered for that job because I was referred through an ex-boyfriend's friend that he went to college with that knew I wanted to write, you know, and that I got to the person that I needed to interview with kind of through those series of networks. And then I think because at that time I had I had a few short films that I'd written and produced. I had experience as an office PA, like, and, and experience on set as a, as a PA kind of wasn't kind of, so I guess there was some amount of like, you can probably be somebody's assistant yeah. <laughs> and you have some like uh, Tassie specifically really wanted, you know, as she, she always wants to bring people up and, bring people into her fold that um, that want to be writers and that she believes in as writers. So it was it was always a 
stepping stone of a position, ideally. So she also wanted to read something, you know? So it kind of, you know, got, I got in the door through those kind of friends of friends of friends, and then was able to back it up with some practical production experience, as well as like the dreams of wanting to actually be a writer. And that at least maybe she could sort of believe for a second that maybe one day I could do it. <laughs> That's amazing. So it was, yeah, a combination of all the things coming together in a perfect storm. So you mentioned earlier about the mystery surrounding getting an agent. So can you talk through, you know, like when you need an agent, when you should approach an agent, you know, that process of getting one and what they ultimately, their benefit can be to you? So in my, my experience with getting an agent was that I, I was already on Rookie Blue. I had come through, I had been Tassie's assistant and the writer's room assistant, and then I'd worked on a season of a hospital drama called Saving Hope as their writer's assistant and then their and their researcher. We got to write some webisodes of the shows at that point, like a, that I got to do, and then came into another season of Rookie Blue as a junior story editor. And I was getting a to co-write a script, which turned into a full draft of a script, my first writing credit. At that point, I got an agent. So... I didn't go out looking for an agent prior to that. It's obviously a harder road to get someone to take a chance on you when you're not already bringing something. I mean, truly, I'm, I at that point was coming to agents being like, you will make money off of me now. <laughs> like I'm already on a show, I'm getting to write. So it was kind of a, I was in, held a little bit more power in that situation than when you're going out without those things. I mean, that was quite a lucky situation, I would say. Like, I do think that it's still worth, uh, like that I've certainly had referred numerous writers to my agent that I believe in and that they can then put forward if they want to take them on into entry-level jobs like obviously everybody knows it's all about that first job and like and then trying to build on that I mean I don't think that cold calling agents gets you very far um in especially in Canada I don't think that's really much of a like kind of the accepted practice I think it's you kind of got to get to them through somebody that they um, that they respect, whether it's somebody that they represent or it's a producer that their clients work with or whatever other, you know, sort of more verified means. But that, yeah, and, and obviously through the, pro like they're always looking at who comes out of the film center every year, and, um, stuff like that. You can get up to being a writer without having an agent. <laughs> like as far as if you're going to go the route of trying to work your way up in a right through different writers' rooms, which, I mean, that's what I did. Some people become playwrights and authors and all the, like, and, and get in with a script without going the, the route of working your way up through, through writers' rooms. But uh, I think there's a benefit to doing what I did also as far as um, you have some handle on the production world, you have some handle on what can actually be achieved with what you're writing, like that when you're getting into the scenes, you have some idea of 
what does this mean for every department? What, like, how are we going to actually execute this as opposed to just sort of writing your, without, without the, with sort of a lack of knowledge about how this can be, um, how this can actually be made, you know, like that's, that's the thing about working on TV shows. And I mean, it, there's a bit of like a magic to it every year that like, we just started filming the final season of Working Moms yesterday. And that they're just, the reality hits you that like, oh, this shit we wrote, like now we're actually shooting it. Like all of these scenes need to actually happen now. And it's not just a final draft document on your computer. Like it's very, and, and that I think you need to, sometimes when people come from a different world of being a playwright or, or what have you, like, or a comedian or whatever, where they just aren't in the production world. Like there's, it's quite a, it's like its own weird little language to um, actually get scripts to the floor and being shot. To deviate back to, if you've, you've got your agent, what do you expect from them? What do you, you know, what's, what is this relationship? I mean, I really, I looked for somebody who I thought responded to my actual writing and felt that they got the kind of career that I wanted to have, that they had a response to my original material really was what I was looking for, somebody that I would be comfortable with, sort of being that vulnerable about what, what I actually want to do. And that now that I'm at a place where it's not just about saying yes to everything that comes along, that they would respect those decisions, that they would cater, you know, that they, that they would actually put me forward for the things that fit me. Um, and that it's not, it's not just like, you know, trying to get me staffed on whatever for as long, the longest contract possible kind of thing. Like, it's much more of like, you get me, you get what we're trying to shape here. There is a long game in mind. They just feeling that like, it's, I don't need somebody to just get me the highest weekly rate, you know, like that's, that's such a sort of short-term gain sort of situation and also can get you, I've, seen some agents who kind of price people out of jobs too quickly like quite quickly are like you can demand this now but that really can can bite you if you if you aren't careful you know what I mean and I think I think when you come up through being an assistant and a PA and all these things that are pretty classically low paying it's uh it's it's alluring to be like oh my god you think you think I can make that that's amazing but that it's, it's, you know, you, you want to have some longevity to this thing. And I think that, that that wasn't my number one goal. I think I'm quite good at looking out for myself in that way. So I wasn't looking for an agent who necessarily was going to be a shark in that classic way of, uh, you know, that very like entourage-y, like uh, sharky agent caricature that's that's not what I was looking for I was much more looking for somebody who who got the artist that I'm trying to be long term so therefore it's kind of just a it we have a my agents are uh Jenny Hollier and Alana Miller and we just have it's like a a real relationship like it's like a lifetime conversation of what what's the project that's being talked about? What would be my relationship to it? And is it a fit or is it not? 
um, kind of before ever getting into like the nitty gritty of of money and credits, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's it's always like, do I want to spend a portion of my life of these precious hours that we have doing this project, you know? Because everything's always more than it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. you know? And just before we get into work from moms, I wanted to ask you about joining the union and, you know, at what point you were ready to join the union and how that's affected your career growth, if at all. I mean, honestly, I joined the union as soon as I could. I joined the union with, at that time, with a two credits on writing webisodes for Rookie Blue, I believe, like, and that that was kind of the, the like entry level of credits that you need, which, which I mean, I'm not a, it's, I mean, all this, this information is definitely available on the WGC website, but I think you only need like one credit, maybe two credits. And those things can be short films or whatever. Like it's not a, it's not an unreasonably high bar to get into the Writers Guild of Canada. And it's also not that expensive. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody else could correct me, but I don't think there's much drawback to joining the union. Like to me, it was kind of a no brainer, really because I wanted to go to the parties, which, you know, remember when we, when we had parties, but that, yeah, that felt like a thing that felt like I get to be in the union. I get to go to the, their, their Christmas parties and the award shows. And it also means that you can submit to the awards and that those things all felt like I don't know, very appealing to me uh, and, and like that there wasn't a big barrier to entry. So, I mean, I would encourage people to join as soon as they could. I don't know anything that makes you feel like you can actually call yourself a professional, I think is helpful. Cause I know that I sort of uh, struggled with that for a long time, you know, like I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm working as an AD and and I want to be a writer, but you know, like, and, and this whole thing of not feeling like you could, I could really own that I am a writer uh, without, even when I was an assistant, it's like you give all these caveats, right? Cause you didn't want to, I didn't want to sound like pretentious or something, but really like that, this is the career that, that I'm, doing and striving towards this is where all my time goes into and you know so I think that the the writer's guild thing just helped me to feel like okay I'm a part of this thing getting into working moms we had an announcement yesterday uh that you guys are ending with season seven so that must be kind of overwhelming for you to have Mm -hmm. been with the show all the time and now, um, now it's coming to an end, but it's been, you know, obviously hugely successful. So before we get into, you know, the peak of it all, um, I want to take it back to the beginning and talk about how you first got involved and, uh, and the evolution of like, your career with the show and what it's meant to you. I mean, yes, Working Moms has been, it's been the, the job of my life so far. I came to the show right at the beginning. I... I mean, the story of that is that my oldest, oldest friend that I met when I was four years old, her name's Paige Murray. uh, We grew up in the middle of nowhere in Ontario and also had, neither of us had any plans of being 
in the film and television industry at all. She went to school for something totally different. But fast forward to a million years later, and she's working at the CBC, and she's Sally Caddo's assistant, who uh, was heading up the head of production at the time, and that she, Paige knew that I wanted to be on uh, on comedies. She knew that, she knew me, she knew my taste, and that she was one day sent the this teaser video that this woman, Catherine Reitman, had made with her husband, Philip, um, for this show, Working Moms. And that Paige just, she's, she sent me the teaser video that they, that they made, which was like a few minutes long. It was so funny and original and cool. And Paige just sent it to me to be like, you need to tell your agent to get on this show. Like, I think this show is going to happen. I think that you should get on it. It's like the most exciting thing ever. Um, and I was like, cool, Paige. Like, I can't just uh, make these things happen. <laughs> like, sure, uh, I'll try I mean, through a series of things, I, I, I had written a, a spec script, an episode of Girls uh, at the time. Now everybody kind of just wants to read originals, but that was the time that writing a spec script was still a bit more of a thing. I'd written an episode of Girls. Sally Cato actually read it. She knew that Catherine was looking for writers still um, and that she loved it. She sent it to Catherine and... Yeah, I don't know. I wrote some good jokes in the first five pages of that girl spec. Like, I don't know. And and somehow got an interview um, and got on the show. Like, and we got brought to L.A. to do the first six weeks of the writer's room on that show. And that was, Catherine was pregnant. She hadn't done this before. I had only been on one hour like drama shows before and was in this room with these incredibly funny comedians and feeling um, the worst imposter syndrome I've felt in my entire life. And, but also it was just, it was so exciting. It was, it was, yeah, it felt like a dream come true working on that first season and feeling like we were writing scenes about hentai. We're writing, there's a bear in it. There's (laughs) There's <laughs> like it, it just had it had so much heart and it was so funny that and I, I couldn't believe that we were actually going to film things that we were writing. <laughs> it's pretty provocative. Uh, not everybody's cup of tea, as my grandmother would say. Um, but it was it was just a, it was a dream doing that first season. And then we carried it right on to the second season. I took a kind of hiatus from the show. I went and worked on some other things. Seasons three and four, I was away from working moms and then came back for season five and then six and then now seven. (laughs) And your role with the show has changed over time too as well, right? You've taken on um, producing, you've done a little bit of directing, you know, personally in, in the mix and how is that, how have those other roles changed your experience with the show? Yeah, I mean, I think that was part of why I stepped away for it for those two seasons in the middle. Like, I just, I needed to flex some other muscles. Um, my husband co-created and directed and show ran a show for CBC and HBO Max called Detention Adventure that I was an EP and writer on. We were getting that off the ground um, and did the first season of that, which was a very, like, incredibly intense 
um, as an experience, it really felt like the show was resting on our shoulders. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was, that was its own experience of really feeling like I was in it, show running, making it, making, you know, sure that we actually achieved all these elements. Like it, it was like the first few seasons of right of working moms, I was really a writer. And even when I was on set, I was there as a writer. I was there to, to watch for tone and pitch jokes and, you know, really watching performance. But I wasn't very involved as a producer at that point, really. Um, a little bit, but nothing like now. Um, so I think doing Detention Adventure sort of bridged that as well as, uh, yeah, I directed and I wanted to finance my own short film, a short called Volcano, that that had just been something that I felt in my heart that I needed to do. I really wanted to um, start, you know, kind of getting closer to writing and directing a feature of my own. That's that's always been a dream of mine. Um, and that I think with working on other people's shows, even when they're very in alignment with your own personal taste, I just needed to be doing a little bit more alongside that to bring my own creative voice. It's not being filtered through anyone else's to, to just start honing that a little better. So that's really what Volcano was all about. Went and worked on a show called Mary Kills People. It's this beautiful dark comedy kind of ser drama series about a doctor who moonlights performing assisted deaths. And I just thought that show was so unique and beautiful that I wanted to be a part of it and got to do an episode of that. And they kind of, so by the time I came back to work in moms, it's, you know, it's a little bit like, obviously when you go away from something and you, and you come back, there's, you see things in a different light. Other people see you slightly differently, you know, and that there's that I think I got to grow up a little bit more in my role on the show. And that now coming into season seven, I'm co-show running with um, a woman named Jesse Gabe. I think it's that might not have happened if I hadn't stepped away from the show, you know, like and had that had that time for some growth. I, I do think that things kind of went the way they were supposed to. And that now I feel when I look, try to look back on this experience, it's, I'm just so grateful and fortunate to have gotten on the show in the first place. I can't believe that we did seven seasons. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, I just think that's, that's, and that this show's just doing kind of performing better and better every year, finding a larger and larger audience, I think is, it's, it's pretty special. It's hard not to feel gratitude and moved by that. And sort of, I feel like a renewed excitement almost as much as I felt at the beginning. Getting onto a show like Working Moms and then having the success that it did, it must've been tough for you to walk away from it. Um, but ultimately all of those experiences that you had became so important, like you said, to maybe ending up back at the show in a different, you know, level of responsibility than you otherwise would have been in. It's, it's interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, what that conversation was with yourself when you were making the decision to leave or to stay. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a tricky thing with, uh, you know, everybody says to like, follow your gut. 
I find it quite hard to follow my gut sometimes, if I'm being honest. I find that I need to take take days to follow my gut because I'll have a I'll have an, an instinctual reaction to something. I'll get really excited or really defensive or really whatever it is and and need to sit with things over a period of time, really kind of talk it out with with my partner, with my agent, with a friend, and ultimately, you know, by by myself to think, is this the right choice? I don't know. I mean, what can what can you do but try to go with what feels right at the time and um, and keep moving forward without the feeling that you that you fucked up, you know? I give credit to to Catherine for allowing me to step away and grow and for valuing that this show is so important to me and that it's also not mine, you know, that that, that ultimately the show is is Catherine's and that that's that sometimes that I needed to do some things that were just for me before coming back and kind of being able to, to give myself to the vision that she created fully again. Like, I think it's it, when you find people that you love to work with, it's tricky to not kind of become possessive of them, you know, because, because you love them and you want them to stay with you because you, 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 you lean on them when you actually find those people that get you and that you want as, you know, actors, directors, production designers, like all of, you know, editors, like these people who really do have a huge part of bringing your vision to life. You know, it can, I think it can feel very like it's hurtful when they leave to pursue something else, you know, and, and that I think it's, it's a challenge. And I know that I, I'm sure it will feel challenging to me too when somebody wants to spread their wings in a different direction. Um, and that I hope that I can, I can respect that and, and sort of have the, have the perspective to know that, that that's okay. And that if they find their way back to you, that hopefully I'll also welcome that, you know, and not feel like there's bridges burned, you know, like that there is room to, to go and do those things and for people to choose other projects and then still choose you again, you know, and that, and that there's not, um, there's no like bad blood to that. Like, I think I, I wasn't sure when I came back to the show, how the, if there was going to be any sort of resentment and really there was, there was nothing like it was all love. And it's been, it's been amazing to come back to really just dive back in like I never left and feel like, you know, I feel like this show is my baby too. I feel like the decision to leave was one thing and the decision to try to come back was a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> and not knowing how that was going to be received, but that uh, like that felt quite vulnerable to, to put it out there that I wanted to come back and that I don't know. I mean, I guess if there's a lesson from that, that it's vulnerability can be can be worth it like what's the worst that's going to happen right a, a rejection I mean I was really did want to come back to the show if there was ever a place for me so I'm 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 just happy that it that it worked out and that I kind of in that moment had the had the courage to reach out and not think 
oh no, this is never going to happen again. And I shouldn't embarrass myself by trying. (laughs) That's such a good story. And so I want to also ask you about the power of Netflix and streaming to promote Canadian content, because of course you've worked on a variety of Canadian shows and Working Mom certainly went through kind of an international boom when it came on Netflix. So I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of speak to the importance of streaming um, to, you know, promoting Canadian content. <laughs> this is a, this is a touchy territory, I feel, for our uh, broadcasters. It's a tricky spot for our Canadian broadcasters because CBC really did champion Working Moms from day one that this show arguably wouldn't have gotten made if it wasn't for the CBC. And that I think they also, they were so open to, to us having nudity, to us showing an abortion, to us really pushing what a sort of 30 minute kind of dramedy could look like on Canadian network television. And I think it was a pretty, amazing relationship and has has been so I think it's 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 hard to marry that with the fact that when the show got picked up by Netflix it exploded across the world I mean it's 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 not fair for it to be known as a Netflix show in some to some respect you know what I mean for the the people who really did get it off the ground I mean it's undeniably pretty amazing to see how well the show has done in all these different countries. Like when it goes to, you know, number one in New Zealand and all like every, like just the, the list of countries is fascinating to us. We can't help, but uh, I don't know, get a kick out of it. And like when, you know, when friends have been like on vacation in Mexico and they're turning it on and like, it's a, you know, in Spanish, it's thrilling. Right. Yeah. I I'm trying to think of what the like sort of, what's a diplomatic way of answering this? Cause I think it is right now a very tricky spot for, for the traditional broadcast landscape as Netflix and Amazon and, you know, like that they are starting to produce their own content supposedly in Canada. Um, so I think the CBC Netflix partnerships in particular are tricky to navigate for the CBC like how do they how do they maintain their branding like on on these shows when they become huge international success stories through Netflix it's a challenge i mean for for me as a creator and as a writer it's just amazing to think of being able to reach an audience like that beyond the linear television landscape you know and beyond the canadian landscape and that a show like working moms is well, it's so like showcases the city. We never are, are certainly never hiding that it's Canadian and that it's filmed in Toronto and all of that. But it's also an incredibly translatable show. You know, it's it's a very, very relatable premise and uh, concept. So it's I'm I'm thrilled that it travels so well, while also still maintaining its Canadianness. So with respect to, you've worked on a lot of TV shows and of course, like you never know, I'm sure what's going to be a success. If there's something that you could say about season one of Working Moms as to maybe what, what was special about Working Moms and, and what do you think, you know, made it um, such a success? 
I mean, I think that it was um, specificity. I think that it's, it is Catherine Reitman's sensibility unapologetically. I think that sometimes shows try to, you know, in an effort to broaden their appeal, when you're getting feedback from, even if it's just different writers or if it's actors or network executives or whatever, people being like, I don't get this. I don't get this scene. I didn't respond to this. I think that with working moms, like not to say that Catherine doesn't listen to notes or something, but that at a point, what's in the show is what moves her, what makes her light up, what tickles her, what, you know, like, and that that's, you need a guiding light. Like you, I, I think that the success of working moms is that we have a strong guiding light in that woman. There's a lot of things that are almost right for the show. They're right in this way. This, this plot kind of works. This character kind of works. This joke kind of works. But that there's, I don't know, like there's, there's a bullseye that is her sensibility that, that you're always trying to hit um, and that, that, that it's our job to hit all of us. And that I think it's the fact that she feels that she believes in it. And I think that that allowed the show to kind of create its own tone. And that, yeah, even seven seasons later, sometimes we're like, is this the tone? Is this right? Is this crazy? Is this too broad? Is this too earnest? And, and that we're always searching for it and trying to get close to it. And that by now, especially those of us who have been on the show for a while, can feel like this, this feels like working moms. This feels like a unique sort of real best of highlight real working moms moment. And that those things can be difficult to articulate, but that you can feel them. So I think especially in the first season when everything was new to everyone, I think that that was where, you know, Catherine really needed to hold her ground on what she felt would make this thing special. At that point, when you get a, your first show greenlit and a million voices come in, you know, that can be pulling you in this way or that way of what's this thing actually going to feel like? You need to hold something. And that I think she she did that. When I was working on the first season and and everybody kept, before it came out, different friends, family, colleagues, whoever were asking, like, what's the show like? Like, is it good? Is it good? Is it funny? Am I going to like it? Like, who is this person? And that I would always say that it is, if you like Catherine's sensibility, you'll like the show. Now, sort of seven seasons later, and so much, you know, golden era of streaming television later, we now see lots of other showrunners who, you know, put on a very specific lens through their writing. And it's quite common now, I would say that you have like these very like it like Atlanta or Insecure or even Girls or whatever like these shows that you know who the showrunner is and that they and you know what their voice sounds like and that if you vibe with this show it's because you vibe with that and that I think that Catherine did that from day one on Working Moms. She's in a tour of television. We need a new word. So I have a kind of more personal question and I hope you don't mind me asking but I'm really curious why or what you're process was like 
of changing your name because it's something that I am sort of struggling with personally at the moment. When you, especially in this kind of industry, when you build your career based on your reputation, reputation, which is your name, mm-hmm. were you nervous to change it? Did you feel like people were going to be like, who's, who's this person? Mm-hmm. I know Karen Moore, right? But I don't mm-hmm. know this new person. I certainly struggled with it. I don't think I have any examples of it. I feel like I have all examples to the contrary. I think it's, it is a very personal choice. My name, Karen Moore, is a very common name. I've always had like had a little bit of a contentious relationship with my name as a result of like feeling, you know, like I was like IMDB Karen Moore number eight, I think, or number nine. I liked this name personally and professionally. You know, obviously on the personal side, I got married and we also just had a baby and I like the idea of having a family name. I, I'm just drawn to the idea of sharing a name with my child, a hyphenated name doesn't work great when your name is more, like that it would just become Karen Moore Keatsack. Didn't like that, you know? So hyphenated was off the table. And that I, I, I love the name itself. I love my, my husband's name and now our family name, Keatsack, even though no one will be able to pronounce it for the rest of my life. Like where he was like, you're nuts. Why would you choose this? <laughs> but that I think I I was drawn to it professionally because to have a more unique name, partially, to be like when you Google Karen Keatsack, I am I am the only one. <laughs> and as far as the the stakes of changing it didn't feel that high, considering that I think that most people who are in a hiring position in this country know who I am. Like, I guess I felt like it was, it would be okay to change it because I think that quickly enough people would get used to it or know, you know, that it would be translatable enough. I think I wanted to change it. You know, we, we talk a lot about my husband and I are in kind of a constant conversation around moving to Los Angeles, around working in the U.S. uh, and, you know, feeling like we want to um, to take those swings in our life. Um, so I think as far as the name change, I wanted to do it prior to that and be able to kind of enter that space with the new name with the uh, and feel like like where I was like, well, if I'm changing it, it's before that. But I, th- I certainly felt a little bit of the like the fear of the negative connotations that go from being a woman who changes their name in 2022 and it's, it's going to be viewed as like some sort of anti-feminist stance and I think that I mean I really just came down on feeling like I want to do this and it's no one else's business basically um, and that if we you know if feminism is really about ultimately respecting what any woman wants to do with their life and their choices then this is this is my choice and that I don't want to not do it because of, of, of any kind of fear of that you might judge me for doing it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you answering that question. It's a little bit of a funny one, but I, mm-hmm. it's a conversation I always want to hear people talk about. And I mean, <clears throat> I'm an entertainment lawyer in the process of changing my name with the law society is like extremely onerous. 
It, it does help how much you want to do it. Let me tell you, there is a lot. It is pain in the ass to change your name. <laughs> exactly. So my last question before I let you go is if you can recommend a piece of Canadian content that you love, that you want to encourage everyone to go check out. Oh, sure. I mean, first and foremost, I'm going to say Detention Adventure, my husband's show, which is this amazing action adventure teen show. It's on CBC Gem. It's a show that punches infinitely above its weight. It's beautiful and funny and moving. And I only worked on the first season, so I can basically talk about it like I didn't work on it without <laughs> and recommend it without sounding like a total loser because I think it honestly just it's one of those shows that when adults watch it they laugh they get all the references they know they feel it they feel the kids growing up um the seasons kind of seasons one two and three each have their own whole kind of vibe to them and subject matter as well as growing up with the kids and it's just it's it's a really really beautiful show it's on cbc gem and hbo max oh i love that and i i mean i feel like i grew up in an era of amazing canadian teen content and i love that that's like part of our tv legacy here in this country yeah yeah for sure <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Karen, for making time to chat with me today. I, I loved hearing your story. Amazing. Thank you so much for all the back and forth with, uh, with a new working mom.